Well, brethren, there go the bells, so it sounds like it's time for us to get our class started this morning. If I could have you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. In our study this morning, we will be looking at uh, Colossians, chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Uh, We will be considering together this morning the subject of being reconciled to God. So before we look together at this passage, let's once again uh, bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for your goodness to us. Even as we look over this past week, we can see the many tokens of your blessing and your goodness toward us. And Lord, we pray that as we gather together this morning and study your word, that you would guide and direct our time together. Uh, We pray that our minds would be clear of any distractions, and Lord, we pray that we might, as your word says, gird up the loins of our mind, that we might be able to know and to understand the truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given him to us to guide us and direct us, to teach us, and especially we thank you, our Father, for the gift of your Son who has reconciled us to yourself through his death on Calvary's cross. Lord, we pray that as we consider together this subject this morning, that you would cause us to rejoice in all that you have done in and through the person of our Savior. We would ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we were reminded several weeks ago in the introduction to the book of Colossians, that the central theme of this epistle is summed up for us over in chapter 3 and verse 1, where the Apostle Paul states very clearly the fact that Christ is all and in all. And we saw that the purpose of this letter was to counteract the potential influence of false doctrine, which at its very core questioned or even denied the preeminence of Christ in relation to both his person as well as his work. And in our study last week, having already extended personal greetings and words of encouragement to these believers, we saw that the Apostle Paul doesn't waste any time getting straight to the point. In verses 5 through 19, he makes a very powerful and a dramatic statement designed to remove from the minds of those to whom he was writing any confusion or any needless doubt concerning the identity of the Lord Jesus. He says concerning him, beginning in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead." so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. 
In other words, the Apostle Paul makes it unmistakably clear in this statement that the Lord Jesus Christ is the full, he is the final, and he is the complete representation and manifestation of God. He is indeed God in human flesh. And that's why the Lord Jesus was able to say with full authority that he who has seen me has seen the Father. In Christ, the invisible God became visible. And John said this over in John 1 and verse 14, very familiar passage to all of us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Paul goes on from here to point out that Christ as God is preeminent over all creation, both seen and unseen. And the reasons he gives are because Christ himself is the creator of all things. He existed before all things were created, and he also sustains all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says. Having created thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, all therefore are subject to his authority. Christ is preeminent over them all. He is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. But then Paul reminds these believers of Christ's preeminence as it relates to the church. He is also head of the body, Paul says, the church. And he underscores the fact that the church is a body, and Christ is the head of that body. In other words, the church is a living organism that is inseparably united together by the Lord Jesus himself. And as a result, he controls every part of it. Through his death and resurrection, he gives the church life and purpose and direction. Thus Christ holds the chief position. He holds the highest rank. He is preeminent in and over all things. And this is all in accordance with the perfect will of God the Father. Our study last week concluded and we begin our study this week with the words of verse 19 where it tells us, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. But not only has God chosen to confer upon his son such a rank that in all things he might have the preeminence, but verse 19 says that in Christ dwells all the fullness, which includes all of the dignity, all of the authority, all of the power, all of the moral excellence to carry out and bring to perfect completion all that the Father has purposed for him to accomplish. In other words, Christ is in every respect perfectly fitted for every work, most notably the creation and sustenance of all things, the redemption of his chosen people, and the provision of everything necessary for our salvation. Again, John said in John 1 and verse 16, that of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
And this is a wonderful truth and ought to bring much comfort and delight for each of us who know the Lord. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in no respect deficient in power, in wisdom, and in grace to redeem and to save us. There is nothing necessary to be done as it relates to our salvation, which Christ is not qualified or capable of doing. There is nothing which you and I as believers need to enable us to perform what God requires us to do to fight against temptation and to bear up under the trials and difficulties of life which Christ is not able to impart the necessary strength, the necessary wisdom and grace in order for us to persevere. And regardless of the nature and gravity of trouble and danger that you and I might find ourselves in here in this life, we will never find any sort of deficiency in our Savior. And so with these things in mind, may we boldly and confidently go to him in all of our troubles, in all of our weaknesses, temptations, and needs, knowing that from his fullness we have and will continue to receive everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Well, having made it clear in verse 19 that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Paul continues by stating that it was also God's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text then this morning, found in Colossians 1, 20-23, focuses upon this great theme, the doctrine of reconciliation. And Paul continues by writing the following words, beginning in verse 20. He says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The term reconcile is one of the most important and descriptive terms used in all of Scripture to describe the richness of our salvation in the person of Christ. And here in our text, Paul not only explicitly uses this term twice, but he also employs the use of other words and phrases which help us to understand more clearly not only what reconciliation means, but also how it is accomplished, what its ultimate purpose is, what the evidences are of this great work in the life of the believer, and its central importance as it relates to the preaching of the gospel. And so to begin with this morning, as we examine the text before us, 
I want us to consider in the first place the definition of reconciliation. The definition of reconciliation. When Scripture speaks of reconciliation, what exactly is it making reference to? Well, the Greek ver- ver- verb that Paul typically uses when speaking of reconciliation is the verb kataloso, which simply means to change or to exchange. And what it refers to is the change in a relationship between two parties from a state of hostility and alienation to one of peace and harmony. It denotes an exchange of enmity for fellowship. Now, while this term is used in certain passages of Scripture to speak of a change in relationship between two people, it is most often used in describing the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. For instance, in Romans 5 and verse 10, Paul uses this word twice in the same verse as he says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, there's the first use of that word, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Another passage where this term is used frequently is over in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 20, where there we read, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's obvious then that when Scripture speaks of reconciliation between God and man, the term implies that a state of hostility and alienation characterized that relationship instead of one of peace and harmony. Now, if you are one of those people who uh, every year begin a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year, chances are that this past Monday or Tuesday you've read the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And it's obvious from that passage that prior to Adam and Eve's disobedience that they enjoyed continual harmonious fellowship with their Creator. And this is evidenced in verse 8 where we read that they were very much familiar with the sound of God walking in the garden. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So they were very familiar, obviously, with that sound prior to verse 8. And up until that point, that was a sound that brought them great delight. It it was a sound that would have caused them to gladly go and meet him and to engage in sweet communion with the Lord. But something happened just prior to verse 8 that changed all of that. In an act of disobedience to the clear command of God, we are told in verses 6 and 7 
that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. When we then come to the next verse, we see that there's a completely different response that they exhibit to the sound of God walking in the garden than what was the norm under those circumstances. When they did not come to meet the Lord as they formerly did, the Lord then, being much aware of what had already taken place, asked a very searching question of Adam. He said to him, Adam, where are you? And it's obvious as the exchange between them took place in the following verses that the consequences of their sin was the alienation of God and man from one another. And as a result, we are told that God drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. While Adam remained obedient, God fellowshiped and communed with him. But when he transgressed the commandment, God withdrew his favor and thrust him out of the garden. John Owen, in the death of death and the death of Christ, says these words. He says, God and man were set at distance, at enmity and variance by sin. Man was the party offending. God offended. And the alienation was mutual on every side. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And Paul here in our text expresses the same truth in verse 21, where he says of these Colossian believers that you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And this is true of all of Adam's fallen race. By nature, the relationship that exists between God and man is one of alienation and hostility. And it's all due to our sinfulness. Sin has raised a barrier. It has created a separation between God and us. And one which you and I could in no wise surmount. And it is at this point then that we turn our attention back to passages such as Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 where we are told very clearly that the ground or basis of hostility and alienation which existed on account of our sin has been removed through the gracious provision of God himself. He says, while we were enemies we were reconciled to God. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. It's important to note at this time that Paul uses another term for reconcile twice here in our text in Colossians chapter 1. 
the Greek word that he uses, apokatalaso, is a compound word made up of the basic word for reconcile, katalaso, with a preposition added to it, apo, which is used to intensify the meaning. This word means that what God has accomplished in reconciling sinners to himself is something that is not partial. It is not temporary in nature, but rather this reconciliation is total reconciliation. It is complete. It is absolutely thorough. And so by definition then, reconciliation is bringing again into unity harmony or agreement that which has been alienated scripture teaches that there is need for reconciliation between god and man because of the alienation that exists between them which has its source in human sin and the righteous hatred of it on the part of a righteous and a holy god The Bible then further teaches that God himself has made gracious provision and provided the means by which the ground or basis of hostility would be removed, thus reconciling sinners to himself. And so that brings us then, secondly, to consider from our text the means of reconciliation. We've looked at the definition of reconciliation Now let's look from our text, secondly, at the means of reconciliation. Paul goes on in our text to remind his readers how it was that God reconciled sinners to himself. He says in verse 20, "...and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He says that through him, that is through Christ, all things have been reconciled to himself, that is reconciled to God. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, that is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, that again is through Christ, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And then if you look down to verse 22, at the beginning of that verse, he repeats the same truth by saying that he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Now we've already noticed in the previous point the fact that God is perfectly holy and righteous in nature. And as a result, he hates sin. God is a God who cannot tolerate sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot simply sweep sin under the rug and pretend that it doesn't exist. No, Scripture makes it clear that sin demands a response from God, and that response is described in terms of wrath, in terms of anger, in terms of indignation. When Moses returned to the mount the second time in Exodus chapter 34, We are told that when the Lord passed before him, he proclaimed in verses 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, 
who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. While God is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and that is his glory that Moses saw, Moses also saw another aspect of God's glorious person, and that is this, that he will by no means clear the guilty. God must punish sin. Nahum 1 and verse 2 says that a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord Jesus said himself in John 3 and 36, that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And Paul writes in Ephesians 5 and verse 6 that because of their sin, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. And so since this is the case, The wrath of God against sin must be appeased if God and man are ever to be reconciled. And this God has made provision for, Paul says to the Colossian believers, through Christ. This was the grand theme of the heavenly host the night that our Savior was born in Bethlehem, wasn't it? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. Reconciliation was the central theme of the anthem of praise that were given the night that our Savior was born. Wesley rightly saw that truth as he penned these words concerning the song of the angels when he said, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God became flesh in the person of his Son to the end that peace might be made between sinful men and a righteous and a holy God. And this was accomplished, Paul says, through the blood of his cross and by his fleshly body through death. On Calvary we know that Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our Savior bore in himself the fury of God's wrath against sin in our room and in our stead, thereby satisfying the demands of divine justice. Isaiah says that God shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ appeased the wrath of God and is therefore the ground or the means whereby the cause of alienation between God and man is removed, namely the guilt of sin. Christ's death on the cross reconciled us to God. It was a work that we could never have accomplished on our own. It was something that only God could have accomplished. Well, having seen then the definition and the means of reconciliation, let us now consider thirdly from our text the aim or the purpose 
of reconciliation, the purpose of reconciliation. What is God's ultimate goal in reconciling sinners to himself? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 22. He says, beginning in verse 21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, and here he gives the purpose, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God's ultimate purpose in reconciliation is to present us holy and pure before him. We were reminded of this purpose at the end of our study in Jude a few weeks ago, where in verse 24 we were told that God is not only able to keep us from falling, but also that he will present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that if we are to stand in the presence of God, such purification is absolutely necessary. Paul says that he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to. Now this term of purpose is not in the original Greek but it's been added by translators to emphasize that Paul is here drawing a conclusion as he describes the ultimate purpose of reconciliation. And that purpose is to present. Literally, this word means to place beside with the idea of exhibiting and of yielding to the disposal of another. In the Septuagint, This verse is often used as a technical term for a priest placing an offering on the altar with the idea of surrendering it or yielding it up. And who is it that he is presenting? Well, Paul says it is you, the believers to whom he is writing. And who is it that they are being presented to? Well, Paul says before him. That is, before God. The term present here is in the aorist tense, which means that an action has been completed at some time, whether it be in the past or the present or the future. And it is most commonly understood that the primary reference here in this passage points to a future event, something that is yet to come. This same terminology Paul uses over in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, where he says there, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And here he uses that word again that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be, and again these words here are used, that she should be holy and blameless. But there's also understanding among many commentators that the use of the term present in the aorist tense has a present, that means in the here and now, element to it as well. 
in the sense of our ongoing sanctification. In other words, in Christ, we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. As believers, we are not what we once were, Paul says here. The old is gone and the new has come. And And though sanctification is a lifelong process for the child of God, we have the assurance that we have been justified, that God has declared us righteous in the courtroom of heaven, that our sins have been borne by Christ on Calvary's cross and therefore no longer held against us, and that His righteousness has been imputed to our account. Thus we are now grieved over our sin. We deeply desire to be holy and order our lives to reflect the likeness of our Savior, anticipating that great day when we will be made perfectly into his image. In Revelation 9.17, John records the words of that great multitude in heaven saying, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then in verse 8, this multitude continues this anthem of praise by saying these words, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And then they say this, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Thus commentators tend to agree that this presentation while it certainly points out a future event, also has in mind a present reality. Paul says to the saints at Corinth in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve that I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might, and again here's that word, present you as a pure virgin. And again in Colossians 1.28, Paul uses the same terminology where he says that we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may, and again this word here is used, present every man complete in Christ. This was Paul's desire to those whom he ministered the gospel that he might be able to present them to Christ pure and holy, and blameless. So the purpose of God in reconciliation is to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The term holy means to be separated from sin and to be set apart to God. It has to do with our relationship with God. And as a result of our union with Christ, God sees us as holy. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But not only are we presented as holy, but Paul says we are also presented to him as blameless. To be blameless means that we are presented 
without blemish. This term is usually is used repeatedly in the Septuagint to speak of sacrificial animals. And it is used in the New Testament in reference to Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Paul uses it again here in our text to describe, amazingly enough, ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but to me... It is beyond comprehension that sinners such as you and I are described using the same adjective that Scripture uses to describe our infinitely incomparable sinless Lord. It's an amazing thing to think of that, that that same word is used to describe both. And as we meditate upon this descriptive word, what does this reveal to us about the wonder of the cleansing power of the precious blood of the Lamb of God, which washes us whiter than the snow. The Lord says in Isaiah 1 and 18 that though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But then thirdly, our text tells us that we are presented to him beyond reproach. This term means that no one can bring a charge against you and I who are the people of God. Not even Satan can make a charge stick against those whom God has reconciled to himself. Paul says in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died Yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Reconciliation makes believers holy and blameless and beyond reproach before him. God sees us now as we will be in heaven when we are glorified. He views us clothed with the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. The process of sanctification involves becoming in practice what we are in reality before God. And Paul will later remind the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 10 that we have put on the new self and that new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is the purpose of God in reconciliation, that we might be presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Well, having seen then the definition and the means and the purpose of reconciliation, let us now consider what Paul has to say concerning the evidence of reconciliation. The evidence of reconciliation Scripture gives several marks or evidences to the fact that one is truly a child of God. And one of those evidences is given here in our text this morning in the first part of verse 23. Beginning back in verse 22, he says that he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then he says these words, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, 
and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul is here saying that people give evidence of being truly reconciled to God when they continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Paul's use of the word if here is not a question of if you do this or that, then you will be saved. Rather, it is a statement which means because of the fact that you are saved, then you will do this or that. It means the completely different thing. The apostle is not casting doubt here on their salvation. He is simply saying that a person who is genuinely saved will most certainly continue in the faith. The word continue means to abide in or to persevere or to persist. The tense speaks of a habitual practice or lifestyle. In Hebrews 3 and verse 14, it gives similar instruction to what is written here when it says that we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. And again, that word if is used there, which could be substituted for the word since. We have become partakers of Christ since we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Such an individual, Paul says, will continue in the faith. The faith here refers to that body of doctrine that was given by God through the apostles to the church, and more specifically in the context, it is speaking of the truth of the gospel or as he says, the hope of the gospel that was communicated to them. It is in the faith that these believers, Paul says, are firmly established. The foundation of their faith is solid. It is unmovable. It is secure. And he goes on to say that their faith is not only firmly established, but it is also steadfast. That's a word which speaks of being settled in one's mind and purpose. And he goes on to say also that it is not moved away. Literally, it's not moved from one place to another. It's not shifting. They're solid, they're firm, they're resolved in the truth of the gospel that they have heard and come to believe in. And so the one who is truly reconciled to God stands on a firm foundation. They are settled. They are unmovable in the faith, which is the hope of the gospel. Perseverance in the faith does not save an individual, but perseverance to the end is evidence that that person is truly reconciled to God. Paul then concludes by identifying specifically what he means by the hope of the gospel. He says, It was that gospel which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The word proclaimed here means to herald, and in the context, it is the heralding of the gospel. 
This word again is in the aorist tense, meaning that it is something that is all that has already happened. It is a historical fact. In obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus, his disciples up until that point of Paul's writing this epistle had been faithful to go into all the world and preach the gospel, even as the Apostle Paul himself had done. And God continues to send forth his people as ministers, as ambassadors into a lost and hopeless world to bring the good news of reconciliation through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. According to 2 Corinthians 5, God has committed to every believer the word or the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, brethren, you and I need to go forth in treating men and women to be reconciled to God. The truth that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him is a message that every man, woman, and child desperately needs to hear. And brethren, in light of these words that we have considered here this morning, may you and I be faithful in proclaiming it. Well, in closing, there's one more point that I wanted to address, and I wanted to spend our last few minutes addressing it, and that is the scope of reconciliation. The scope of reconciliation. And under this point, I would draw our attention back to verse 20 and address the question that arises from the wording here. Is the reconciling work of Christ on the cross inclusive of more than what Paul has concentrated on here in the majority of our text, that being the relationship between God and man. Is the reconciling work of Christ on the cross inclusive of more than what Paul has concentrated on here in the majority of our text, that being the relationship between God and man? Verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What is Paul referring to when he says that God in Christ purposed to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, there are about as many interpretations on this statement as there are commentators. <laughs> all the commentators that I read, uh, they're all over the map on this. Some of them include a few of the same points, some differ on them, some hold to one point, some hold to all of them. The, anyway, so I'm not going to stand here pretending to know that I know the answer to this, and I'm not going to be definitive on it. Uh, my purpose here in the next uh, few minutes is just to give you some possibilities that godly men have raised as to what exactly Paul is referring to here when he talks about all things, whether in heaven or in earth, being reconciled to God through the death of his Son. What then does the term all things include? Well, without a doubt, it has in mind the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. 
That is the burden of the text here, and it's obviously that we can be dogmatic on that point, that all things definitely is referring to that. It is referring to all, all things refers to that right relationship between God and man that, that God, through the sacrifice of his son, has accomplished on our behalf. That, we can be most certain, that is specifically stated here in the text. Another thing we can also be certain of is that we can be certain of the fact that all things does not indiscriminately refer to all things. Universalism teaches that all things include all fallen men and angels, arguing that in the end there will be no need of hell because all will be saved or reconciled to God. That's what the universalist believes, that in the end every creature will be reconciled to God, even those who are in hell. Well, scripture makes it clear that there's coming a day, according to Matthew 25, when the Lord will say to the wicked, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Therefore, all things is not a proof text for environment, not environmentalism, for universalism, for universalism. Uh, so that is not what it's saying. So we can be dogmatic on what it is saying, that uh, God has reconciled sinners to himself. What it is not saying is it is not a proof text for universalism. Universalism is not true. That is not what scripture teaches. So what then might Paul be referring to as he does not specify any, anything further in the text concerning what he's speaking of? Well, the following are five common possibilities that commentators put forward, and these are not in any specific order as far as most common to least common or vice versa. I just put these out here for your own future study and meditation. First of all, the first possibility has to do with God's work of reconciliation through the cross between Jew and Gentile. In speaking of the enmity that formerly existed between the two, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16, that Christ himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and has broken down the barrier or the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances." so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So here we see these words in this passage. It talks about reconciliation, talks about peace, talks about enmity, talks about breaking down the barrier of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in order that both may be reconciled to God. That's a very common uh, understanding of what Paul is referring to here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. So the first interpretation has to do with God's work of reconciliation through the cross having brought Jew and Gentile together, breaking down that dividing wall in order that both may be reconciled to God. That's the first 
possibility that commentators put forward. The second possibility has to do with reconciliation between the holy angels and fallen men. It has to do between the holy angels and fallen men. This, the argument for this position states that when men fell, the angels who stood continuously in the presence of God frequently were used as willing and enthusiastic instruments of God to execute judgment against wicked men. We see many examples of this in the Old Testament where angels were sent by God in order to exercise judgment against wickedness. And like God, they were hostile toward fallen men on account of sin. However, in the New Testament, references made in passages such as Hebrews 1 and verse 14 telling us that the angels are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And the argument for this interpretation is that through the reconciling work of God through Christ, that angels and men are now reconciled with one another. The third interpretation, or the third argument, points to the future judgment of unredeemed men and angels. The argument here is that all persons will not be reconciled to God in the saving sense, but in the judicial sense. They will be reconciled to God for judgment, and they will agree with him and submit to him for final sentencing. There they will bow the knee in submission to God, and they will acknowledge that his judgments are right, and they will join with every other created being in confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this sense, all unredeemed men and angels will be redeemed to God. The fourth possibility points to all of the creation being reconciled to God. When Adam fell back in Genesis chapter 3, the effects of the fall extended to all creation. The account in Genesis 3 bears this reality out. The very ground we read there was cursed on account of Adam's sin. And as a result, Romans 3 tells us that the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This passage points out that the day is coming when God and creation will be reconciled. The curse of Genesis 3 will be removed and creation once again restored to a right relationship to its creator. Now that's the fourth understanding of what Paul is talking about here in verse 20. And then the fifth and final one goes beyond that And it points to the reconciled state of all things in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3 describes for us the peace, 
harmony, and perfect fellowship that will exist throughout all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Here we find in this passage that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be perfect reconciliation between God and man, between the new heaven and the new earth. And so, brethren, those are five possibilities. Uh, It may include all of them. All things may include all of them. It may include some of them. It may include part of them. But certainly these uh, things are worthy of our consideration and our study and our meditation as to what Paul exactly is referring to here. But the bottom line is, bless God, that God has reconciled us as sinners to himself through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the central theme. That is what Paul, above all things, wants us to understand. So may we be very thankful to the Lord for all that he has accomplished for us in and through the person of our Savior. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning in all that you have accomplished on our behalf in reconciling us as sinners to yourself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would say with the hymn writer, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And particularly this morning, we thank you for this great work of reconciliation that you have accomplished through the person and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause us to leave this place rejoicing in these things this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.